So it's time for another seminal episode in Trek history. I mean that sincerely, I'm not just memeing, but it is funny since Kuhn actually wrote this one too. Oh gosh, where to begin? Let's get the little trivia stuff out of the way first. Uh, John Newland directed this episode. You may recognize him as having never done anything else in Star Trek history. It's just funny at this point. I think that's going to stop happening when we get to Season 2. And they kind of uh, develop more of a process for making the show. Thanks to the Under the Hood stuff and the, the producers shifting over. <sighs> Is that it? That's it for trivia? Okay, sure. Let's talk about the Klingons. Now, I've actually talked about the Klingons a whole lot in this show. I love Klingon politics. I love Klingon culture. I love what they've done with it. I've analyzed and discussed it so much that at this point I feel comfortable just off the cuff randomly discussing Klingons with just about anyone who wants to because there's so much to dissect there. There's so much to go into. This ties into something that Miss, uh, Miss Fontana actually said. She said that by having a recurring character we have an excuse me, when I say character, I, I'm referring to a species. So when we have a recurring species, we now have established species. Once we have an established species, we can explore it, and we can expand on it. Her words. And I absolutely agree with her. I'm... I've been pushing for more continuity in Star Trek since I was a child. Not even joking. Since I was one digit old. I have been pushing for more continuity in Star Trek. But a lot of that has been because of the absence of continuity. Recent Trek apparently is, is going for more of a string continuity thing, which is a little different. Now, I like string continuity, but this kind of world building and setting building is the kind of thing that I eat up, and I just want episodes to acknowledge the events of previous episodes. I, I mean, is, is that so much to ask? But I bring all this up because this point right here is exactly one of the powers of continuity. Investment. Now that we have a regular race that we can establish and expand and explore, we have more possibilities for storytelling, and in my blunt opinion, we have better storytelling. Because of that investment, because of its... Pre I mean, Day of the Dove is not exactly a good episode. At least by memory. We'll see when we get there. But the fact that it's the Klingons and the fact that it's presented in the way it is would, makes it have more impact than it otherwise would, as I've talked many times before. I don't want to retread this ground too much. I just think it's interesting she agreed with me on this. She also agrees with me on another point that I've theorized, that the reason the Klingons became the recurring characters in Star Trek was because their makeup was cheaper and easier to do. To be clear, I don't know if that's codified fact or not, but she theorized on it, I theorized on it, and it is true the makeup was much easier to do. Thanks in no small part to Mr. Kalikos himself, who plays Coor in this episode, and in DS9 as well. And just absolutely does an amazing job of it. John Kolokos nails his role, but I'll, I'll gush later. I'll gush later. Uh, he, w he was actually supposed to be the recurring Klingon in Day of the Dove and uh, Trial... Uh, uh, not Trials and Tribulations. Uh, Trouble with Tribbles. In both episodes, it was actually supposed to be Kur, but they swapped it around because they couldn't get a hold of Kolokos, so instead we got Koloth and Kang. Go figure. Or should I say co-figure? But, I'm sorry, I was talking about the makeup thing. He himself was sitting down, uh, and they were like, so, what should we do with the makeup? And he was listening, and this is one of the things I like about good actors like him, good guest stars. He cared enough to actually get some backstory on who the Klingons were and what they were, and from that he was like, okay, I'm picturing, like, 
you know, this big kind of Soviet Union power. Why don't we rewind that a bit and make me kind of Mongolian-looking thing? And so they, they dyed his hair black and they set up this whole thing, and that became the look for the Klingons, at least in this era. <laughs> it's an interesting question, isn't it? Would you rather have good makeup that you only see on a race once, or bad makeup on a race that you can see half a dozen times, or a dozen times? I'm not even sure how many Klingon episodes there are. I know there's quite a few, relatively speaking, in TOS. In fact, I also know there's more Klingon episodes than any other race in Star in TOS, with only one exception. And the only reason that exception even exists is because Spock pulls it technically there. If it wasn't for Spock being in every episode, the Klingons would have the most presence. But because of him, we have Vulcans. And lo and behold, those are the two big races, aren't they? Across all of Trek. Vulcans and Klingons. <sighs> yeah, um, let's, let's jump into this, uh, there's this bit, oh, by the way, this is the final time that they actually refer to Spock as a Vulcanian, just, just wanted to share that little tidbit. So we need to take steps, we have orders to take steps to prevent the Klingons from using Organia as a base, because it's strategically important, okay, and the, notice the automatic deflector thing, okay, that's kind of cool. And then they mention uh, that it, they have to get there as quickly as possible, and they actually go to Warp 7. Now, if you remember, we've already established, thanks to Arena, that Warp 7's fast. Now, you wouldn't know that if you weren't watching these in order, but if you are, then we already have that establishment. Warp 7 is almost max speed. In fact, even Warp 7 is possibly damaging to the ship. So we've got sense of urgency, we've got sense of danger, we've got establishment, we've got war. Uh, Sulu gets the helm. It's not quite the Excelsior, but, you know, it's, it's something equivalent. And he gets his orders to get the hell out of town. And I'm kind of jumping through events because the first thing I want to talk about is how weirdly excellent the exposition is in the early part of the episode. We've never heard of the Klingons before. It's so weird to think about that. We're at the end of season one of TOS and the Klingons hadn't even been invented until this episode. But they are invented in a very smart way. All the discussion about them, all of the, the talk, especially in the early part of the episode, establishes that the Klingons have a long-standing history with the Federation and a long-standing conflict, which is expounded upon throughout the whole episode. The whole episode builds up the history that hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> right? It's wonderful exposition. This is a... I, I hate to gush about this, but this is a brilliant way to do this. Because this helps us to get a feel and a vibe for a people and an idea that we've never seen. It's even feasible we've never seen it because, you know, the Enterprise in particular has been out on its five-year mission. They've been dealing with random hotspots going all over the place. So this Klingon conflict could easily have been building in the background. Even if I was to somehow remix TOS and, like, restructure the episodes to, to clean them up a bit... I, uh, you know, polishing out continuity and fixing out little issues, stuff like that, in like a, a, a super futuristic, I have a, access to a holodeck kind of a situation. I still would not have the Klingons have presence until this episode. Reference. That's the only thing I'd change. Maybe in the background chatter. Or like during a random report, we'd hear a thing about another you know, Klingon attack on this area, or this area has gotten a bit of uh, issues from the Klingons. I would also have reference to the other side of things. You know, we have successfully cut off all trade routes to such and such in the Klingon Empire. Little stuff like that, right? So they're referenced in the background, but that's it, and now they're here. Next thing I want to bring up. You'll notice this war with the Klingons supersedes the Prime Directive. Did you catch that? Go down to the Organians, beam down in the middle of town, by the way, 
to what is apparently a pre-industrial society. Another good use of the old props, by the way. Just pointing it out. And go there and be like, hey, we need you guys to be on our side. So we're here to help you and arm you and defend. We're going to send you supplies. We're going to send you munitions. We're going to violate the Prime Directive in exactly the way that it was originally intended to prevent. No, really. From a real-life perspective, I have said many, many times, and I, I, a lot of people tend to agree with me on this, although it can be debated, the Prime Directive was a direct response to, um, not McCarthyism, the Truman Doctrine. There we go. The Truman Doctrine, which, for those of you who haven't studied history or are not familiar with the term, basically boiled down to, okay, there's the Soviet Union, here's us, we're going to supply arms and material and munitions into what are effectively proxy battles to prevent the spread of communism in order to curtail Soviet power and to prevent them from expanding. Sound familiar? This, is, this was a very unpopular doctrine, and for very good reason. But that is exactly what they're doing here. They are walking up to the Organians who, to their knowledge, are a pre-industrial race and saying, Hey, here's some guns, here's some training, here's some specialists. Go f we're going to set you up so you can fight our enemies with us and for us. Cool? Cool. Now, it's easy to see this and kind of raise an eyebrow since, you know, obviously the Federation are better than the Klingon Empire. And they are. I don't actually mind saying that. But it is interesting to see this direct violation and basically this application of the Truman Doctrine. You also notice nobody reacts to them beaming down in the middle of town. I don't think I ever noticed before all the hints that are in this episode about the true nature of the Organians. There's actually quite a few. I'm apparently just a moron and I never noticed them before. So, I'm doing that so thing again. They, they, we tell you they're a military dictatorship and, and Kirk is like, I've got to try and convince you of this and he's failing miserably at his job. This also leads to him getting frustrated and saying he's a soldier, not a diplomat. It's okay, Starfleet's not a military. But what I find funny about this in particular is that Kirk has sh shown several times he does know how to diplomatize better than Archer, who is a trained diplomat. I just had to bring that up since we've been covering, you know, Enterprise at the same time here. So then we find out tens of thousands of years these people have been stagnant. What? They really like stagnation on TOS. That's three times it's shown up. Actually, four, excuse me. It's shown up just in, just in season one here. So, there's sign number two that the Organians, you know, are, are what they are, and that they are completely unafraid of the Klingon incursion. Then there's sign number three. Trefane actually point flat out says, Ah, oh, sir, the, the Klingon fleet has just shown up. And then he's like, hey, and they just beam down several people. He's just feeding them intel. And they're like, how does he know how to do that? Now check this out. I never noticed this before either. Kirk is just flummoxed by this whole thing. And as he's trying to, to understand, there's this one bit where uh, Adolf, Adolf Aylborn, Aylborn says, you know what, you're absolutely right. Perhaps it's best if I explain. And he starts to go into explaining something. We never know what, because that's when the Klingon fleet arrives and that he's interrupted in that possible explanation. I wonder if he was just going to be like, yeah, listen, we're energy beings, dude. We're cool. We're cool. But we'll never know, of course, because he was interrupted. This then leads to Kur. God, I love Kur in this episode. I actually love Kur in DS9, too. 
One of the things, if I could just gush for just a second, one of the things I loved about Cooler in DS9, and I'm pretty sure I covered that in my DS9 videos about him in, in each episode he shows up, is he was one of the good guys, but he was not a good guy. He was not a heroic figure. He was not someone who turned the other cheek or was helpful or respectful or kind or compassionate or all the things we consider good traits and good ideologies. He just happened to now be on a faction that was aligned with our guys. And so because of that and because of his friendship with Dax, he was seen in a positive light, and understandably so, but he still had those tints and airs of being a Klingon conqueror. I just find that interesting because that means in DS9 he was good, shaded, bad. In this episode he is bad, shaded, good. Love it. And surely intentional by DS9 at least to help keep that going. As a lot of the DS9 staff were TOS fanboys. Core, first of all, by the way, you notice the baldric he's wearing? I'm sure you do. It's Worf's. No, seriously, that is the exact same prop that Worf uses in Season 1 TNG. It's actually in a museum, last I checked. <laughs> Anywho, <clears throat> so Korra shows up. We are in charge. We have conquered everything. There's these very strict rules, and there's these very strict things. And all these things that don't really sound what I would call Klingon. Now, hear me out for a second. All of that makes sense. The Klingons haven't really been established yet. Remember, we have to, we have to establish them, then, then expand, then we can, uh, we can explore them. But because they haven't been established yet, because they're not here yet, well, we don't really have a Klingon culture yet. So they're just a military dictatorship, as described, who are very harsh and an occupying oppressive power. You know, default ten, ten, I don't know why I'm saying the word ten, one to one, ten to one doesn't make any sense, one to one kind of a thing, right? Okay, we move in, we conquer. One of my favorite rules he mentions, you, no more than three people can group in one time. Huh? That's such a weird... I mean, I get why that rule exists, but it's really dumb. Anyways. But we see all these strict rules, and we see they are super harsh about it. And you, if you violate any of these rules, you'll be killed. And you will kill tens of billions of people, trillions upon quadrillions of people, if you kill so much as one Klingon, and so forth and so on. All of that just sounds like bad guys of the week. Pretty much Nazis, right? So why aren't the Klingons that? It is entirely because of Kur. Remember what I mentioned earlier, bad shaded towards good? He comes in, he, he rules these out, but he's respectful, affable. I would even so, go so far as to say he actually has a good charisma score. When, when Kirk pushes back against him, metaphorically, mentally, uh, you know, he says, I, I don't approve of you. His response? Very good. And then when he literally pushes back, he's, oh, good, honest hatred. Very refreshing. Your uh, it smiles and smiles. I don't like these people. You. You I can work with. And he establishes an almost immediate respect for Kirk. And throughout the course of the episode, Kirk will in turn learn to respect him. Sound familiar? Because this is almost the exact same path that Khan took. You could see also now why Kur was supposed to be the recurring Klingon. Why he was going to come back twice after this. Because this mutual respect and this kind of charismatic, interesting, not just a bad guy villain is the kind of thing this show needed more of, and people tend to get into in general. And we don't even have the, the sexual harassment crap that Khan went through, so that's even better. <laughs> I just 
whatever. So he goes through. I keep saying so. He he talks to him and he, he's working with them. And there's this really there's so many attempts as Kur just dis sneers at the at the Organians like God, you are completely beneath me. But you, he he, he brings him in and says, okay, you're going to be in charge of things. He he puts Kirk in charge of the the well, he makes him the uh, liaison, which basically is a forced collaboration post, but still effectively puts Kirk in charge of implementing Klingon rule here. Functionally making him the civilian government leader attached to the military occupation. In other words, his, he's basically becomes Kors' lieutenant here. Think about that for a second. I, just, I love it. I love it. Then uh, Kirk and Spark are like, okay, well, we need, to, we need to prompt a rebellion. It's the only way. It's the only thing we can do. We have to talk in front of the Klingon guards about how we're here on a mission to disrupt things. It's okay. They, they're they not actually supposed to be in the scene, so they don't hear any of the dialogue. So they go and they try to do this thing, and it just really doesn't work. You know, they, they blow up the thing, and there's the <clears throat> night shots, definitely not fil filmed with a filter. I understand. I'm not going to poke fun at that, really. Budget issues, time issues. Remember, they were still having trouble making this show... Uh, at all, just making the show. So I'm completely with, you know, doing whatever they have to to make it happen. Waiting until night to shoot would just be a, a aberrant and also not necessarily work, because lighting at night? Ugh. They don't take out the thing. They defeat the Klingon. All sorts of st fun stuff happens. And they're like, okay, now we have shown you how to rebel. Now we have proven. Because their attitude this whole time is we have to prove to the Organians that they can oppose the Klingons. The Organians are like, why are you doing this? Total pacifism. There's this follow-up seed, which is absolutely hysterical. They they sell out... Uh, well, actually, uh, the Klingons are observing everything. This is actually how they show up later, too, during a conflict. The, the Klingons are observing everything. Everything's under surveillance, Captain. And they find out that Kirk's here, and the Organist says, No, no, he's, he's James T. Kirk. I'll tell you who he is. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Kur spits on the Arganians. You disgust me. He like he he just finishes talking about how there's a difference between recklessness and courage, and then he immediately turns and just sneers at the Arganians. This then leads to Kirk. I am not ashamed to turn down my life, but the thought of dying for you sickens me. It's just it is so hysterical watching Kirk and Kur slowly bond over the course of this episode of their mutual shared dis. dis of the Organians. See, that makes sense, though, doesn't it? No, hear me out for a second. Because lacking proper information, I would too. How many times have I spoken against being a doormat? Right? The Federation just rolling over and letting people walk all over you? I hate that. I actually despise that as a philosophy. It is very antithesis to the way I tend to think. I am not a starter of fights. I am a finisher of fights. That means I am not here to hurt you or brutalize you or do anything against you unless I need to or I am pushed to. I will fight back, as I have demonstrated many, many times, both physically but also, far more importantly, metaphorically. I'm not just going to simply roll over and let life destroy me as it has tried so many times to do. Why do you think I'm still here? If I was like the Organians, not the power, but the mentality, I'd be dead. But I don't think that way. 
So can't you then see, from the limited perspective, that utter despair? Pickle, just, God, I can't believe you are so pacifistic that you refuse to lay a hand to do anything, or raise a hand to do anything. What is wrong with you people? Kaur even laments. It's, a, it's, it's fantastic. He says, ah, oh, what will you do with Kirk? Well, I will go and talk with him, and then, hesitation, I will do what must be done. And he says it so regrettably. And later they have the scene where they're sitting there, and they're, they've got their, their, their things, and he's just having a drink with them. You know, just talking. And, and it's a wonderful exposition scene, too, because it gives us yet another valuable insight into the Klingon mindset, and Kur's mindset in particular. See, I mentioned how they're all not very Klingon. Kur is very Klingon. He is pretty much the prototype Klingon. I, I, I mean, I guess he is literally the prototype Klingon, but you know what I mean. In terms of the Klingon culture, how you react... What you do in response is what really matters to him. He doesn't push you because he hates you. He doesn't insult you because he means it. He is trying to see how you react and what you react with. And when you do, that helps him to judge you and react to you. This is why he so immediately respects Kirk. This is why when told that, you know, conquering the galaxy, there will be people who push back, his first response is, and I quote it down, excellent, this will be a great test of wills and powers. He's excited at the prospect. Why wouldn't he be? He's a Klingon. That idea of pushing themselves and pushing others is just how their society works. It's fascinating to see this so early in Star Trek history. This is doubly funny because if you're paying attention, back in Balance of Terror, those Romulans are Romulans. That is the Romulan mindset that will be carried forward all the way through into Enterprise. Same with the Klingons, although the Klingon mindset kind of died after DS9, if we're being honest with ourselves, because the Enterprise Klingons are just dumb. But, you know, let's not get into that. So I, I love this. I love... I'm sorry, let me preface that. The Klingon, the Klingons in Enterprise that I have seen as of right now, which is the Season 1 stuff, they're dumb. I, should, I needed to preface that because I forgot they're in Season 4, and they're a lot better in Season 4. Okay, sorry. Asterisk over with. So I love... This showcasing of Kur and how happy he is. They actually break in. They, they, they break out of the thing. By the way, that's another wonderful showcasing of Organian power. They break out. And, and by break out, I mean he just walks up and lets them out. Really, that should have been the big sign that the Organians are more than they pled on. I don't know how I ever missed that. Kur is like, oh my god, how did they get found? I, I will deal with this. And then Kirk and Spock are like, you know, I really don't want to die for you, but maybe our certain deaths will at least inspire you to do something. <sighs> and they wander off to die. Just, I guess I'll go die for the Organians. <sighs> it's pretty much the attitude the whole time. Because, again, everything I mentioned earlier about the pacifism. And they go to see Kor. What's Kor's reaction to seeing them? He smiles. He's like, Oh, this is awesome. You have defeated, you have managed to sneak through my base, get into my room, and you're here to kill me. That is awesome. He is so jazzed about that. That is so wonderfully Klingon. I love it. And then, check this out. Then they, they decide to actually fight, and the Organians are like, No, I will prevent you from fighting. All right. I actually have a really big topic here. Do you mind if I pause in it for a second? I, I want to get to the big topic last, okay? So, having done that, the Organians then show up to completely violate the Prime Directive by massively intervening in foreign powers and preventing them from going to war. Before I say anything else, do you think this is the right thing to do, yes or no? 
Bonus question for those of you who know me well enough to know my terminology. Do you think it was the correct thing to do, yes or no? As always, I'd love to know why as well. This is a fascinating change, and one that I can get behind, legitimately. I'm not sure if it's right or correct, but it's the kind of thing that I would knee-jerk be leaning towards. Why? Because I'm a firm believer in the idea that if you have power, you should use it for the benefit of others. That is the point of power, right? So if you have the level of power the Organians do, and knowing the kind of devastation that we cause by an interstellar war between two powers of this magnitude, yeah, getting involved is probably a good move. What the Organians do is extremely blunt, though, to the point of being overt. They just put a big wall and say, Nope. You know, they snap the, the infinity gauntlet. Hang on, wrong hand. Nope. War's off. I'm not sure that was the best approach. But it is extremely effective. And the Organian Treaty lasts until Star Trek VI, when it is replaced by the Kittimer Accords. That says something in its own right. What do you guys think? Either way, they massively violate the Prime Directive that they don't have. This is also something interesting, by the way. Um, they really have a thing with godlike aliens. Check this out. We have the Thasians. That would be Charlie X's thing. We have the Telosians from the Cage and Menagerie. We have Trelane. Duh. And we have the Metrons from Arena. And now we have the frickin' uh, Organians. How many godlike aliens are there in this frickin' galaxy? Anyway, sorry, I just I had to make fun of that really quick. This is funny, though. All of the complaints about the Klingon Empire certainly have a strong validity to them. They are militaristic, they are conquering, they are violent, and they are expansionist. Here's the interesting part. Kor briefly, in the, the two are ranting about why they have the right to go to war and why they have the right to settle their disputes. Kor briefly mentions economic and political aggressiveness by the Federation to curtail the Klingon function to prevent them from proper trade, or to prevent expansion. We get the very strong impression that the Federation has been using non-military means to try and contain the Klingon Empire for some time. Now, that's a certainly a valid a uh, action to do, and it is certainly a valid way to try and contain an expansionist power. But I bring all this up because you can see how an expansionist power would look at that as a direct challenge. Just because you're not shooting at them doesn't mean you aren't doing something, right? That's an easily understandable concept. Back in school, how many times did you have a teacher say, well, they didn't punch you, so you didn't have the right to punch them, when all you're thinking about is all of the things they were saying to you, all of the mental and emotional damage they were doing, regardless of the physical damage you did to them. Now, I'm not justifying what the Klingons did, merely trying to put a little bit of a different light on things and showcasing how the Federation was not completely innocent in the escalation of this conflict. There are other ways to try and work with an expansionist empire. We know this. The Federation does this in the future. More than once. There's also this wonderful, wonderful bit where Kirk says, We have the right! It's probably the most quoted line scene in the entire episode. We have the right to commit murder? To, to, to destroy on a planetary scale? Is that what you're arguing for? Uh, credit to Shatner in one of his moments of actually being a good actor. His expression as he realizes what is being said is just... And if you pay attention to the episode, the beginning of the episode was him... War. We didn't want it, but we have it. And there's just this quiet, lamentable dread about the very prospect of war. And then by the end, he's like, we have the right to war. And there's a fairly smooth gradient across the episode to that point. 
It's a very nice A to Z shift that happens in him. And it's only until someone slams in his face, and this is why the Organian approach may be considered acceptable, having that wall just smack into your face can kind of make you go, oh, a shock to the system in short. A metaphorical slap. In the future you will be friends. Now this is funny. First of all, he mentions that they'll be friends in the future, and anybody who knows Star Trek is like, oh, yeah, because, you know, TNG happens. But what I find far more amusing about that is that Kur and Kirk have actually been pretty unified most of the episode. And they've only gotten closer to respecting and actually working with each other the further into the episode we get. This really comes to a head in the scene immediately following. Kur says, no, it's a trap. We can, we can make it work. I have my army. We can defeat them. And Kur is actually offering to unify with Kirk against the Organians. Brilliant. But, unfortunately, the war is off. A shame. It would have been glorious. But I said I have one big thing to talk about, and that thing is pacifism. Now, I'm pretty anti-pacifist for reasons I've already explained. I don't like being a doormat, but... Hear me out for just a second, okay? One of the things I said earlier was that when I'm pushed, I push back, right? I, actually, it's, it's a little more complex than that. It's more like you're pushed, and then you give verbal warning, and then you're pushed again, and then you escalate, right? But you, you get the idea. It's actually more like a four-step process, not two-step. But I don't feel like getting more into the nitty-gritty. The point is, most people understand that idea. Defending yourself. Someone at a school or an office with regards to your job or out in the wild because you're a hunter-gatherer seven billion years ago, rough approximation, or maybe in an actual armed conflict or maybe you're just uh, being accosted on the street. The idea of defending yourself is a really basic idea that most people are completely on board with. I don't even probably have to explain that. What happens if you don't have to? It's so easy to look at the Organians and sneer dismissively at their passivity. But what if you had the power level they do? What if you were basically a Q? Now you might say, well, they can still push you, but they, they, they can't, really. Not, not really. They can no longer metaphorically push you. They can't hurt you. The, you know, the Klingons rounded up the 200 Organians and shot them. The 200 Organians are just like, okay, whatever and went back to their books or whatever it is they were doing. They don't care. There's no danger. There's no threat. You are no longer in a position where self-defense is part of the equation. Unless you're the Escalabans, but I, that's a side joke that I don't want to get into. So, under those auspices, all of a sudden self-defense falls away from the equation because there is no such thing. And from that angle, isn't pacifism a little bit more understandable? The idea of well, I don't really need to defend myself, so you can just wail on me all you want. It's not going to do anything. Will it make you feel any better? I mention this because one of the things I myself have said is the one of the ideals of having truly tremendous amounts of power is no longer having to use it to hurt or kill others. Um, you know, this is related to the more down-to-earth concept of a truly good soldier does not have to kill. They can just infiltrate and accomplish their mission and then leave, right? Ghosting if you want to use the Deus Ex term, which I myself have mentioned before, too. 
So given that mindset, maybe that pacifism is, is just a little bit more understandable. But then this ties in neatly to the other thing the Organians do. Intervention. Now, they don't interfere with other people in most things, and they probably shouldn't. But again, the nature and scale of this war was mentioned multiple times to be very, very large and very devastating. Millions dead, planets devastated. Well, if you have that level of power, you could easily just get rid of, destroy the Federation and the Klingons. And they could have. The Organians absolutely could have done that. Junk. Gone. Done. But they don't. They intervene in a pacifist way by basically forcing both sides to no longer be capable of their conflict. And now the pacifism suddenly gets a whole lot more understandable because, again, when you have enough power, you don't have to kill. You see how this all time kind of ties up here? I cannot believe this, but I'm actually finding myself more on the Organian side than I have ever been before. And it's just such a weird thing to think about, since I am such an anti-pacifist myself. But then again if I might be so bold, by my own personal definitions of pacifism, they violate, or they are not pacifist in the end of the episode, because they do get involved, and they do help, and they do try to actually accomplish something. After all, being aggressive does not necessarily mean trying to hurt or kill. Food for thought. I would very, very, very much love to hear your guys' thoughts on the Organians, the Klingons, core, and of course the whole pacifism concept at the end. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been an awesome episode. This, I think, actually... I think I'm going to tie Balance of Terror in this one. They're, these are just both. I'm looking at my list. I keep a list of episodes and my relative quality of, like, the top and the bottom. This is, this is great stuff. I love it. There's only a couple of nitpicks in the whole episode. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time.